Welcome back to Inside Personal Growth. This is Greg Voison. I'm your host. I've been hosting this show for almost 11 years, and I have a returning guest today, Andrew Holacek. Andrew is the author of a book called Dream Yoga, Illuminating Your Life Through Lucid Dreaming and the Tibetan Yogas of Sleep. Good day, DeAndrew. How are you doing out there in Boulder? Hi, Greg. I'm fine. Nice to hear your voice again. Oh, it's great to hear you as well. And uh, this is a great book. Um, I was doing some all of my questionings for our interview tonight, and it just is fascinating what you've been able to pull together here as far as this. And I'm sure my listeners are going to be quite interested in this. I'm going to let cool. my listeners know um, something about you. Andrew offers seminars internationally on meditation, dream yoga, and the art of dying. He's the author of The Power and the Pain, which that was podcast number 260 for all of uh, your other listeners out there who want to go back. I've actually interviewed Andrew before, Preparing to Die, and Meditation in the Eye Generation. Uh, Joining modern knowledge of the West with the ancient wisdom of the East, his work is intended to wake us up to our full human potential. Also available from Sounds True, this is a Sounds True book, is Andrew's Dream Yoga Guided Audio Learning Course. And for more information, you obviously can visit SoundsTrue.com or Andrew's website, which is AndrewHOLECEK.com. That's H-O-L-E-C-E-K.com. Andrew, pleasure having you back on the show again. I think uh, you say it uh, on the back of your book. When you fall asleep every night, you're actually falling awake into a dimension of reality uh, that's as vast as the cosmos. Um, You have really quite a story about how you got involved in the study of lucid dreaming. Can you tell our listeners about your journey to this place of lucid dreaming? Yeah, sure. You know, I've always had a somewhat active dream life, but um, my dream life really took off in my early 20s when I had an experience, one of these, you know, kind of archetypal shape-shifting before and after experiences that really, even to this day, some 40 years later, turned out to be one of the great um, kind of pivotal moments of my life. And to make a long story short, I I was... um, I just finished a five-year undergraduate double degree program and was trying to figure out what to do with my life. So I took a year off to work in maximum security federal uh, penitentiary and also um, uh, as a surgical tech. Um, and during this time, I was you know, actively researching and studying some, at that point, I guess you could say they were new age topics. Um, and you know, my mind one day when I was contemplating this particular topic, my, my mind just um, somewhat suddenly just opened. And uh, for a period of about two weeks, I entered, uh, you know, you could say it's an altered state of reality, but I would argue that um, everything other than that is really the altered state. In other words, what we consider so-called waking reality is actually the altered state. But I had a uh, they sometimes refer to it as metanoia, this kind of breakthrough, where I simply saw reality or what seemed to be reality in a completely different way. And part of the sequence of this experience was um, a rapid onset of nearly constant lucid dreams, which, of course, a, a lucid dream is when you're dreaming and you wake up to the fact that you're dreaming. So you're actually conscious in the dream. Um, and so my my nighttime experience became um, increasingly conscious 
And uh, concomitantly, there was also a uh, an experience of my day becoming increasingly illusory, more dreamlike. And so there was this kind of merging of night and day. Um, and as I mentioned in the preface to the book, I, I reached a point where it became somewhat challenging um, to differentiate between waking and dreaming consciousness. And because I didn't really have the doctrinal infrastructure to understand what was happening, I, I, um, I basically slowly started to panic because I, I couldn't determine what was real anymore. Um, and so I so began a, a real search to try to understand what this experience was about. You know, it lasted about two weeks, and I began a, a fairly rigorous and systematic study of the world's contemplative traditions to try to gain some footing in terms of what was this that I just experienced. And somewhat by process of elimination, I eventually stumbled onto the Buddhist tradition. Um, and interestingly enough, even the word Buddha, um, the name literally means the awakened one or one who knows. So there's always been a deep kind of intimation in Buddhism about waking up. Um, and so I just found myself nodding my head all the time, resonating with the teachings um, and then especially when it came upon the Buddhist teachings, the Tibetan Buddhist teachings on dream yoga, it really was like I had found my home. Um, and ever since then, I've been exploring, you know, the nocturnal meditations, and there's others we can explore, lucid dreaming, dream yoga, are just, you know, two of the four. I just became very passionate about exploring how it is that mind manifests when we sleep and dream, and this passion has brought me into psychological studies, philosophical, scientific studies, um, in terms of understanding kind of the full spectrum of mind as it manifests throughout, you know, the, the entire 24 hours of the day. Well, it, it obviously is a, is a great state of consciousness that you were able to attain to be able to actually not be able to differentiate that. Obviously, there aren't um, too many people within probably that I know um, that it, it actually have had that experience. I mean, that's a it's a pretty amazing experience. And you mentioned that dream <laughs> yoga originated, as you were saying, with this Buddhist practice, and that emptiness is the core doctrine of Buddhism. In other words, emptying the mind, uh, being in that state. What is you said that there's four, but one yes. of the book is all about dream yoga. What is yes. what is dream yoga for our listeners? Yeah, yeah. Well. Um, Dream yoga builds on, I have to mention the, the practice that comes before it because that's the one that's a little bit more well-known and also adds, uh, really is the platform for dream yoga. So the first practice, of course, is indeed lucid dreaming. Um, and this, there's a tremendous amount of press on this recently. It's been scientifically proven back in 1975, 1977. So it's gained a lot of scientific credibility and traction, uh, lots of studies, lots of books, lots of popular press these days. The movie Inception, of course, was based on that. Um, and so just by contradistinction, you know, lucid dreaming, as I mentioned earlier, is about waking up to the fact that you're dreaming. Um, and it's largely for purposes of discussion, really, it's about um, self-fulfillment. You know, you can fulfill your wildest dreams. You can do whatever you want. Um, at more advanced levels of lucid dreaming, you can engage in psychological growth, work with nightmares, um, even working with depression. You can resolve a tremendous amount of psychological issues using the medium of your dreams. And so what dream yoga does is it takes basically, in a Hegelian kind of term, it transcends but includes lucid dreaming. So it it goes farther. Um, you could say it's where we transition from psychological to spiritual bandwidths. And so um, instead of self-fulfillment as being the principal charter, we're really looking at self-transcendence. 
And as you intimated when you talked about, you know, dream yoga really circumambulates this the central teaching of Buddhism, which is emptiness. Emptiness is one way the Buddhists describe reality. And really, uh, if I had one definition of Buddhism, I would say Buddhism is a description of reality. And so dream yoga is about um, understanding the nature of mind and reality as it manifests in the dream state. And once you become lucid, instead of just indulging in your mind, you know, kind of instead of using your mind as the ultimate in home entertainment, you transform your mind into a kind of spiritual laboratory and you engage in a, a spectrum of meditations, which I relate in the book, but, you know, nine different stages of practices. I articulate them going from subtle, I'm going from gross to extremely subtle, where you start to really um, penetrate the nature of reality. And the ultimate, one of the ultimate aspects of this is, in fact, to realize the, the, uh, in this, uh, uh, like you could say the confluence of waking and dreaming consciousness that fundamentally from a, a, a spiritually awakened point of view, and you could you could really argue that the Buddha was the ultimate lucid dreamer. So those mm-hmm. who are spiritually awake are ult- ultimate lucid dreamers where you realize there's no fundamental difference between the way my mind manifests during the day and the way it manifests at night. And so we use, them in dream yoga, we use the, the mind as it manifests in this highly distilled and refined way and many spiritual masters actually go so far as to to put forth that the meditations you accomplish in the dream state um, are up to nine times more transformative and effective as those accomplished during the uh, the so-called waking state because you're working with a tectonic place of your experience. And I, I would put forth that this is one of the principal reasons why people might be interested in these sorts of practices is because you're working with such foundational bandwidths of your being, you know, that it's... it's it's a hybrid state of consciousness where the conscious mind really faces the unconscious mind directly. That's a very rare opportunity to work with the, the tectonic place of the ground of your experience. And, and as we know, backstage runs on stage. What you do down there can have a profound effect on what you do up here. So in a nutshell, that's what we do with Dream Yoga. And then, of course, you take the insights from the night and you extend them to outside, so to speak, where you don't just leave the insights in the medium of the dream state you transpose them into waking reality. And, and the implications and applications here from the seemingly esoteric practice are extraordinarily practical. You know, you develop a malleability and flexibility of mind. You realize that things are not as heavy and solid as, as they appear to be. And there's a whole host of really quite practical, psychological, spiritual implications behind this work that I would put forth really make it worth some exploration. Well, so what you're alluding to is that doing this practice from what you get you derive out of it is a, is a complete freedom uh, as I that's the best way I can explain it um, because I think you know we get into our subconscious our unconscious our superconscious and the reality is is that I think when you're dividing between those three um, you really are dividing in other words you're spending yeah. time in them, what you're saying is you don't have to do that. Um, it it would be nice if we could attain that state like the Buddha did the whole time. And you speak about these three pranas or wisdom tools that are used to take the journey inward. Speak to our listeners about those, and then what? And then if you would tag a story with this, as you've worked with your clients and people you've seen, what kind of transformations have you seen from? Yeah pains in their life, practical things that they've used this for um, that have really 
uh, they've transmuted as a result of this yeah. practice? Yeah, great question, Greg. Um, well, let me let me just um, dovetail the very first thing you said with the very last thing you said um, because they do tie together, and then I'll talk about the three prajnas. Um, and that is that really, as you alluded to at the outset of this um, sec- last section here, is that one of the fruitional aspects of this practice is to really come to the conclusion of saying, um, you know, this is a dream. I am free. I can change. Um, and this is no small thing. I mean, we, we tend to live in a um, self-imposed prison, a, a so-called waking reality that we reify, interestingly enough, in our own egoic image. We take the central properties of the ego, which I put forth in, the, in my book as the unholy trinity <laughs> of solid, lasting, and independent. And we project that um, image like a perverse King Midas to freeze a fluid, malleable um, world into our reified image, into our version of gold, which is solid, lasting, and independent, which is a one way to talk about a dualistic perception of reality. We, per- we project this dualistic world. It's not the way the world is inherently. We make it this way. And so when we penetrate through this facade, this illusion of reification, and I suppose if there, if there is an original sin in Buddhism, and of course there isn't, it would be this thing called reification, which is making things, imputing things to be real, when inherently they, they do not have that power. So when we reify a world, we imbue it with a power it does not inherently have. And then that reified power comes back like a boomerang to hit us on the back of the head and causes us so much duress. So as we start to... You could almost say as we start to reify the dream state, which we usually dismiss as being unreal, it in fact serves to de-reify the waking state. And hence uh, why this is so important is that then all of a sudden the world no longer has that kind of power it once did. You know, words that once affected you so deeply, um, inflating you with praise or deflating you with blame, they just pass through you like like neutrons passing through your body right now. They they no longer have any fe- effect. And all this raging materialism that we have, this, you know, this lust for possession, um, intellectual, psychological, material acquisition, is all based on thinking that the things that we're lusting after are fundamentally real. So if you see the reality of these um, appearances, the illusory nature, then you're free of them. And this, of course, is why the great mystics and, and religious masters and spiritual sages, they virtually have nothing in terms of material possessions, but they um, actually have everything. So, you know, that that's no small thing. So you could say that's certainly one of the fruitions of this practice is to de-reify, to soften, to make more flexible. In fact, I'm sure you know this popular um, colloquialism, you know, blessed are the flexible for they are never bent out of shape. Um, and that really... That is a very practical implication, this kind of freedom that comes about when you realize you're lusting after things that in- inherently have no substantive um, existence. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, if you want me to, to backpedal into the three prajnas, um, I I work with these throughout the book and actually a great deal of my teaching altogether um, because I think it's the best way to kind of work with incorporating teachings. And these three prajnas or wisdom tools are hearing, contemplating, and meditating. And there, it's a wonderful kind of pedagogical format that I employ that makes a great deal of sense to me. Um, and the, the metaphor I use is it's, you know, hearing is what we're doing now. We're talking, we're discussing something. It's pretty obvious. Contemplating, of course, is when you go a little bit deeper, you start to reflect, you start to, you know, chew on the material. 
And then in the spiritual traditions, and it's really, I, I have to say, why I am a member of the spiritual traditions is this final stage of meditation really is what it's all about, which is when it's a full embodied incorporation of the material. And so the analogy metaphor I use is ingest, digest, and then metabolize the teachings so that they almost literally become you. Because otherwise, in my experience, if you don't do that, you know, you kind of slip into the pejorative aspect of being a philosopher. Uh, and a, trust me, I love philosophy. But if you leave it merely at the level of the intellect, um, it won't fundamentally change you. If you if you want to be changed, you have to feel things. You have to really bring it into your body, into your soma. So this kind of tripartite um, uh, pedagogical approach takes, you know, cerebral data and transforms it into somatic fiber. And and you feel it when you're around a great spiritual being like the Dalai Lama or Desmond Tutu, from any master from any tradition. They don't have to say a word to transmit the teachings because they have embodied the teachings and they live the teachings. And I really appreciate this kind of approach um, where you actually bring the stuff into your heart. And so that's the approach. It's a classic approach in the Buddhist tradition. It certainly resonates with my own experience, and I engage it in almost all my teaching and writing as a way to bring this material into one's very being. Um, and therefore, you go into the world kind of wearing and living these teachings. Well, what I like about it, uh, Andrew, is just the practicality of it. I mean, it's it's a very sequential step. In other words, it's, it's a step from the superficial to the deep. Um, and the reality is, is that's what makes it so... Um, valuable, and I and I find that about Buddhism in particular, all of the practices of Buddhism. Now, you you have something that you refer to as state check. Yeah. Um, how, how do you recommend that our audience use this uh, this tool or this thing yeah. called state check? Yeah, that's great. It's a it's a classic um, trick uh, or method in the in the lucid dreaming tradition that certainly applies to the dream yoga tradition where. Um, the way it works, Greg, is that one of the biggest reasons we uh, don't wake up to the fact that we're dreaming is that we do not contest the dream state. In other words, you know, we just go along unquestioningly with whatever happens. You know, you're you're dreaming, and a pink elephant walks into your dreamscape, and you know, you just go, you don't even question it. You go, oh, okay, you know, so what? Then, and, and because we don't question authority, so to speak. Um, we then unwittingly just get sucked into the contents of the dream and we just go along with it. And that is, in fact, the definition of non-lucidity. So what state checks are about, and they're, they're actually very clever and very fun, is that whenever um, anything unusual happens during the daytime, um, you want to create a particular habit or, I mean, habit is just one way to talk about karma. You want to create kind of karmic predispositions or habitual tendencies. Um, such that whenever anything dreamlike or unusual happens in your waking state, like say, for instance, we're talking right now, and uh, you know, if you're by a window, like a bird just smacked into your window or, or uh, a deer just walks by, something a little bit out of the ordinary, you want to sensitize yourself um, to conduct a state check whenever something odd happens so that um, that particular habit will carry over. So there are a number of ways to do it. The, the Really, the easiest one that's the most fun is, let's say, a bird hits the window. Um, I, I'm so sensitized to this now that what I do is every time something odd happens, I, I jump up. That's the actual state check. And it's a state check because 
if I am uh, in waking state, I will come back down. I'll jump up and I'll come right back down. But if I do this in the dream state, again, that habit continues. If I do this in the dream state, vast majority of the time is I jump up and I keep going. Um, in other words, I'll take off into flight. And then instantly it's like, hey, wait a second. I can't do this in waking reality. I must be dreaming. And so by sensitizing ourselves to these um, anomalies, to these weird occurrences, which of course our dreams are largely defined by um, discontinuities and congruities and weirdnesses, if we sensitize ourselves to that during the day, when these weirdnesses happen in the night and they happen every single night when we dream, we'll be able to you know, conduct a state check um, and then determine. So the really good news with lucid dreaming is that yes, it may take some practice um, to develop proficiency to have a lucid dream every night, but the really good news is it only takes one flash of recognition to transform a non-lucid dream to a lucid dream. And conducting state checks is a very fun, clever way to bring about that kind of um, induction. What is what? Just real quickly, and might be a little off the subject, but I've done a lot of interviews around signs and symbols and synchronicities. Right? And there's a, a couple of people, you know, the bird hitting the window or something you see or yeah. something. Yeah, um, right. In in some of these ancient wisdom traditions, it's to be looked at and say, so what? What was the meaning of that? What what yes. what did meaning did that have? Do you have a, a similar? belief or philosophy around that or is you just kind of writing off the bird hitting the window well it depends on on what might be occurring with within the context of that incident and as you know carl jung wrote very beautifully on this topic of synchronicity and i have to say i'm a big fan of the overarching idea behind it Mm -hmm. And, and that is that yes indeed in fact i have to say um to dovetail back to my initial story about how i got into this one of the things that had that was occurring during this two-week um, ride that I alluded to at the outset was everything in my so-called waking reality, in fact, became um, uh, synchronicity or uh, kind of imbued with a deep sense of symbolism and, and meaning. So my entire world became saturated with this type of message. And, and it's very interesting in the Tibetan Buddhist tradition, at the highest stages, um, they often say that you know phenomena are all the books one needs. In other words, it's referred to as symbolic guru, where the world becomes your teacher. And if you are sensitive enough to it, and again, these dream practices can cultivate this kind of sensitivity, if you are open and sensitive to it, you can almost say initiate the dialogue and conversation with your world in this way, the world does seem to respond in kind. And um, the world becomes this symbolic teacher for you. And I think synchronicities are part of that. And, mm-hmm. and again, as a, as a brief sidebar there, in my own experience, Greg, I have always um, really taken synchronicities as a message from the cosmos without getting too um, anthropocentric here, that I'm on the right track. I'm doing the right. right. And I, if, I'm not, if I'm not doing the right thing, in my experience, um, synchronicities are replaced uh, coincidence is replaced by accidents so if i'm being if i'm not doing the right thing i get nudged and eventually bumped by from my phenomenal world telling me hey this is not the right track you're not doing the right thing so um yeah i'm a huge fan of this um kind of more sensitive way to relate to the phenomenal world absolutely well thank you for that because i, I didn't want to leave that element out of this interview because 
I really thought that was your philosophical belief, but I, I didn't quite hear that from that. But I am a, such a, a believer in that uh, because so much has happened in my life as a result of those synchronicities, signs, and symbols. Absolutely. Now, you, you state that the dreams of clarity come from well below the psyche and deeper right. bandwidths of the substrate. Right. What are some of the types of dreams <laughs> that emanate from these deep levels, and what meanings can we derive from them? So you might take from your personal examples or some of your clients, but uh, you know, probably a personal example would be best uh, of of something that you dreamed about. Um, and then let's let's look at the meaning that we can derive yeah. from them. Yeah. Cool. Well, that's a very pregnant question, Greg. So first thing you know, you're suggesting. Um, and I have to say just a little bit about these three um, kind of strata of mind. So what what you're referring to, of course, that I mentioned in the book is I have this kind of grossest um, sweeping definition of the three levels of mind, the psyche being the so-called superficial waking consciousness, virtually synonymous with an egoic relationship to the world. And underneath it is this vast intermediate um, bandwidth um, that I refer to as the substrate mind, the upper bandwidth is is correlative with Western views of the unconscious mind. The deepest aspects of the substrate mind would, would be to transition from psychological to spiritual domains of identity. And then even sublimating that, of course, which is where we transition from psychological to spiritual traditions, you have what I refer to, not not I, the Buddhist tradition, but I use this term, the clear light mind, you know, the, the awakened mind, Christ consciousness, Buddha nature, whatever you want to refer to it that is that is actually the basis of, of all the upper levels. So when you enter the dream state, our dreams arise from different bandwidths of these unconscious um, frequencies, you could say. And the farther down you go, um, the more sacred, the more spiritual, the more profound the dreams can actually become. And, and this kind of um, thesis, you could say, is inherent, I would put forth in virtually all the world's spiritual traditions. And so in the deepest levels of, of the substrate mind, um, as you were mentioning in your question, you can start having these dreams of uh, clarity. Um, and these dreams are coming from almost transpersonal um, domains that where space and time no longer apply, um, quite magical things can occur. You can most certainly receive teachings. And even classically, I have to interject, even Freud, Jung, even the a handful of the kind of classic um, psychologists in the Western world believed in this type of um, communication potential. In other words, telepathic dreams and whatnot were definitely within the purview of, of even someone as staunch as Freud, believe it or not. And this certainly resonates with my own worldview and my own experience. So I have had countless dreams of this nature, and especially when I go into very deep retreat, like when I did my three-year meditation retreat, I would often receive, sometimes by directly incubating these dreams for myself, or even becoming a surrogate dreamer for others in our meditation group, um, I would have uh, dreams that would, would guide me in terms of my meditative experience and my own practice. So as a personal example, in the second year of my three-year retreat, we lost our retreat master, um, which is not exactly a great thing, because when you're working with your mind so intently for you know, 16 hours during the day and actually practicing when we sleep and dream, it's very helpful to have ongoing guidance because self-deception runs rampant in deep meditation and spirituality altogether. So it's very easy to kid yourself. And so what I did is I started um, incubating dreams 
basically asking for some guidance. And um, very, very frequently, either the, the same night I incubated it or within a night or two, I would receive um, these kinds of dreams of clarity. And they would often come with incredible specificity. Sometimes they weren't lucid. Sometimes they would come as just a dream, a classic non-lucid dream, but of such kind of import, you just know it. Um, it just delivers this feeling of deep resonance. Um, and whether, I have to say, I have to interject this, Greg, whether these dreams of clarity come from some external source or whether they come from a, a deep wisdom aspect of my own deepest mind arising in a particular form that I might then interpret as external, that doesn't matter to me. It's the message that's important, not the messenger. And so these dreams of clarity, many, many people have them. They can transform your life. Um, and that's the other great thing about these nocturnal practices is you do not have to have lucid dreams all the time or even lucid sleep experiences. You know, they, because they come from such a deep bandwidth of our identity, it's a little bit like having a near-death experience. You don't have to have a near-death experience over and over to be transformed. You just need one um, because they come from such foundational bandwidths. They can shape-shift an entire life. Um, and that's the other reason I encourage people to explore these things because you can tap into vast natural resources that usually remain um, untapped. Well, so it, it's it's a lot better than doing drugs, you know. I know. So the the point is, is once you learn some of these techniques, you know, I, I think you know. Obviously, uh, uh, there's a lot of people that go and do ayahuasca, and they you know they want to get to these altered state of consciousnesses. And you know, I've interviewed Ram Dass and all some of the great masters of 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 our time about this stuff. And the reality is, is when you do come to this level of deep meditation, this deep level of shifting consciousness to have these kind of dreams it's really got huge impact you know i could be on i didn't even get through like literally four or five of my questions here out of all of them that i created but our time has come to a close and i thought maybe what we would do is you know if you would just kind of sum up for our listeners uh you know look this is a great book for people that are exploring their dreams dream yoga illuminating your life through lucid dreaming and the tibetan yogas of sleep um and we've we've been on with andrew holacek andrew what do you want to leave our listeners with is a some kind of something that would wrap up this interview and our time together about uh dreams and lucid dreaming yeah well you know i guess it would be that we we are sitting atop of an incredible natural resource, um, mm-hmm. the, deep, the deep dimensions of our unconscious mind, where a great deal of natural inherent power, wisdom, and beauty really resides waiting for us as a natural resource. And these practices are designed, they've been practiced for thousands of years. They're designed to help us take better advantage of this precious human life. Um, we can add up to a third of our lives. It's lost in unconscious sleep and dream. Um, we can add these lost periods of time to our spiritual um, and psychological development. And so for me, in this age when we're so busy, so distracted, we have a hard time finding practice time and retreat time, well, we drop into a type of retreat every single night. And without losing your rest with these techniques, you can learn to engage in a form of exploration that's fun, that's fundamental, that's profound, And instead of waking up on the wrong side of the bed, as we often do, these practices are really about waking up on the right side of the bed Mm -hmm. and 
And having the mood of a good dream affect not only your day, but fundamentally your entire life. Great way to sum that up, Andrew. And and for my listeners, we'll have a link on the blog. But if you're interested in learning more, go to Andrew Holacek. That's H-O-L-E-C-E-K dot com to learn more about his books, his webinars, his seminars. We'll also put a link in the blog to the YouTube video as well uh, for Andrew. And again, reach out to him. This is a great opportunity um, and actually, you know, almost a free one, Andrew, because it's something that happens to us all the time. Isn't it? Uh, it isn't a big expense. It's just something for you to start practicing some of the techniques that Andrew uh, alludes to in the book. Um, it's been a pleasure having you on again, Andrew. I really appreciate you taking the time and imparting some of your wisdom and knowledge about the years and years and years you've spent studying this. And just for my listeners, uh, a Ken Wilber quote that's on the back of his book says, don't miss your opportunity to realize some of the very deepest and highest of all human potentials from a real master of these realms, Ken Wilber, the fourth uh, turning. And uh, couldn't have a better endorsement than that. So, Andrew, thanks again for everything. Um, I appreciate this is a Sounds True book. You also can go up to Sounds True. If you want to get his audio recordings, uh, go there instead. I'm sure you can pluck those off the website and probably find them other places as well. But that's SoundsTrue.com. And just type in Andrew's name. Andrew, thanks thanks a ton. It's been a delight, Greg. And thanks again for your very thoughtful questions. Always great to spend some time with you. (laughs) 